this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, a campaign designed to raise awareness about sexual violence and provide methods to prevent it. In honor of Sexual Assault Awareness Month, Just Science interviewed Pat Speck, a board-certified family nurse practitioner and professor at the University of Alabama Birmingham School of Nursing about sexual assault testing and victim-centered care. Sexual assault evidence collection has changed dramatically over the years. From the original test tubes and cotton stoppers to the advanced sexual assault kits in use today, advancements in science have fundamentally altered the process of testing for sexual assault. Listen in as Pat Speck discusses her research, the importance of trauma-informed care, and the evolution of sexual assault evidence collection in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice operated by RTI International. We are in the middle of Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and we're very, very fortunate to have on the podcast today one of the foremost leaders in sexual assault response and helping us become better at being more effective, being more compassionate and how we deal with persons who are vulnerable to sexual violence. We have on the program today, Pat Beck. Pat graduated from the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, College of Nursing. What is the DNP? That's obviously a nursing term I'm not familiar with, Pat. What is the DNP of public health nursing? How does that, what does that mean? It's a doctorate in nursing science um, that combined dissertation with a practice doctorate. Okay, super. She's now at the University of Alabama Birmingham School of Nursing in the Department of Community Health Outcomes and Systems, and is the professor and coordinator of the Graduate Advanced Forensic Nursing Program of Study. She's a board-certified family nurse practitioner and, as a forensic nursing practice expert, has seen or supervised the care of over 15,000 acutely victimized persons. She partners with forensic laboratory experts to collect samples for research about extended postcoital intervals and produced evidence in 2015, again in 2019, to expand timing for DNA detection with enhanced methods in reproductively aged minority and non-minority women with global implications. And she's been involved in just about every corner of the forensic nursing community in the American Academy of Nursing, in the Global Health Expert Panel, in the Violence Expert Panel, President of the International Association of Forensic Nursing, Chair of the Public Health Association's Family Violence Protection Forum Caucus. She received the Lifetime Professional Impact Award from the End Violence Against Women International in 2017. Welcome to the podcast, Pat. <laughs> Thank you, John. So it's always a, a difficult time to be thinking about sexual assault, and it's a very sensitive topic. Did you start in your career in nursing with the idea that you wanted to get into forensic nursing? And was forensic nursing even a thing back in the 1980s? You know, that's a great question. I actually worked in the emergency room in a pediatric hospital 
and was very unhappy with being a nurse in a hospital. So I talked to my advisor who said, you need to come back and be a nurse practitioner. So within a couple of months of graduating from a BSN program, I was back into graduate school and I bounced around. But uh, while working in the emergency room and the ambulatory care clinic, um, triage nurse, that kind of thing, I met a physician, uh, Dr. David Muram, and he was seeing children who had been sexually assaulted. And at the time, I was aware there was a program in Memphis called the Memphis Rape Crisis Center. It was started by Dr. Beverly Bounds in 1973. She received a Health and Human Services grant to begin to use nurse practitioners as sexual assault response nurses. They already knew how to do all kinds of physical exams on patients as well as genital exams. And it was an ideal match. They had to get it through the courts. Courts said, of course, nurses can be experts. And the three nurses that were trained were trained at the time. And you're right, it was a different industry. They were trained by some of the leaders in the field at the time. They worked in the forensic laboratory. They were prosecutors. And they were law enforcement. They didn't teach them how to nurse. They knew how to nurse. What they did was teach them what the different roles were in the investigation of a crime. And they asked that the nurses, while they were examining these patients in that medical arena, would you also collect some samples? And this is what you have to do to those samples. Now, at the time, John, you're right, it was very different. We used a Johnson & Johnson kit that was based on the Vitulo kit that came out later but it was actually test tubes and cotton stoppers. And it was sealed, it was plastic, it was designed to be refrigerated and picked up on the same day, taken to the lab and developed a novel idea, correct? Uh, At the time, I was needing a graduate thesis because at the time we had to uh, complete a thesis. And so I wanted to study the nurses. And they said, hell no. But we have a question about the victims that we'd like for you to study. So they saw at the time about 300 or so victims a year. That number doubled the year that they opened. And by the time I looked at the population, they were seeing about five to 600 a year. And this had to be in 82 to 85. Just like we know today, We didn't get a lot of participation. It took me almost two years to get the 35 that I needed to have statistical significance. But what I looked at was the state trade anxiety. And in my research, I found that the state anxiety, that is what they felt like after the rape, was very, very high. But the trade anxiety was very normal, like the rest of the population. I never followed What is trade anxiety, Pat? Trade anxiety is what we carry around in our daily lives. How much do we trust our environment? And what I found out later was that some of the researchers had actually followed up six months later, and they found no difference between trait and state anxiety. I think that that research put me on a trajectory of knowing exactly what I wanted to do as a nurse practitioner. 
I wanted to study. I was curious about what happens to people. And more importantly, I eventually went to work there and became the coordinator and was that for about 20 years. It was a unique situation because the city-county collaborated. The public health department was part of that. And the public health department was the partner necessary in order to provide the medical treatment. So it was a nice situation. It's been duplicated in other communities now. But the majority of these programs now are in hospitals, and they have to be because the RN is the nurse that is available 24-7-365. So that's how I got started. I needed a research thesis. <laughs> well, it's interesting to me because we still have the same problems today. And I don't know whether they're better or worse, actually, where having folks from public health or folks from the forensic science, law enforcement, and prosecutor communities, they're all very different communities, as you well know. And the sexual assault nurse is kind of stuck in the middle between all of those different collaborations. Oftentimes, they might be, you know, the only person who really does talk that broadly to that number of people. Do you think that kind of cross-disciplinary collaboration is better today? Have we made progress from the days in, that you experienced in the public health department in Tennessee? What I hear you asking is, do teams work collaboratively? And yes, they do. Do they understand the distinctions in each other's roles? Probably not, but they respect mm -hmm. it. And so, for instance, I'll speak from the nurse perspective. The registered nurse is a licensed provider, and every relationship that they enter is governed by that license in their state. So they don't have the liberty to step outside their role, which is why in many states they evaluated the role of the responder, the nurse responder, in this case, the forensic nurse in sexual assault care, they evaluated that role. And the big stickler in the early days, and I testified in front of a number of boards of nursing, the big stickler was, can a nurse insert a speculum? Can a nurse use a colposcope? Obviously, nurses do a lot of probative examinations, and the speculum was another way to get into a cavity. So, of course, it was approved. The colposcope was considered diagnostic by many, but the colposcope is a magnifying glass. So if you take away a magnifying glass from a provider, you might as well remove all the glasses because a lot of people have magnification because of their visual deficits. So those early hurdles were the nursing role was understood that they enter a patient relationship. They provide care that leads to a medical diagnosis. And that's for the RN. For the advanced practice nurse, they actually have the capacity in the state license that they practice under to create that diagnosis. So it is about the nurse role and understanding that that's a healthcare provider licensed role that is governed by standards of practice and best practices and the evidence that supports that practice. Now, one of the watchwords in the community uh, today is victim-centric care. 
I would assume that somebody who is getting into a registered nurse already is going to come to the table with an enormous amount of uh, not only proclivity but knowledge about how to pay attention to a patient, patient-centric care in that case, more broadly. But victim-centric care is something that isn't just a nursing requirement, it's sexual assault response. Can you kind of talk about what victim-centric care is and what the implications of that are? Well, the, yes, I can. And the science for patient-centered care is that the patient directs us as healthcare providers in the plans that we make for their uh, recovery from illness. So let me give you an example. Um, The nurse will call it patient-centered care. Since the rape awareness was after nursing, they adopted the term victim-centered care because nurses have always, under their code of ethics with interpretive statements, have always considered the patient the center of their being. We are that support for that patient. But it's not only support. It really is an approach to a patient that understands that patient is a unique human being with unique experiences, with unique goals, beliefs, and preferences. That individual and the nurse enters their world and then helps that person with all of those things that make them unique, offers them a smorgasbord of options for their care to improve their health. Because nurse is not disease-focused. Nurse is health-focused. So in order to obtain health, one has to know about disease, know about the medication they're taking, know about living activities that will improve health, And then the nurse is responsible for ensuring that patient has that information and actually understands it. And then that's a whole other body of science called health literacy. But when we look at patient-centered care, it's driven by our code of ethics. And our code of ethics is well-explained, available online to all who can go and look it up and see how nurses are socialized into patient-centered care. When it's extrapolated to victim-centered care, it is just a term that is used by others who don't have the complexity of the relationship that's licensed in those states. That's really interesting, Pat. But let me challenge you a little bit from the perspective of a different kind of practitioner. And let's just focus, for example, on law enforcement. When You know, to some extent, I'd say, you know, a really good police officer has this more holistic view of how uh, he or she operates in the community, right? The whole community-oriented policing model is part of that, and the idea of creating public safety as opposed to merely enforcing the law kind of has some similarities to patient-centered care, I think, in a way. But on the other hand, they have what they would call a job to do as well. They are going to be much more effective if they are able to have that same philosophy of being victim-centric, and especially if they're able to work with a a well-trained nurse practitioner, especially if they're trained in in sexual assault nursing per se. But are you expecting too much from a police officer to be able to get deep into this when they're at their point of care, which is a very different kind of point of care than than a forensic nurse would have? 
from a nursing perspective, I work collaboratively with lots of different disciplines. Each one has a different goal. And the challenge is, I take that challenge, that the officer who uses principles of patient-centered care in the victim-centered care philosophy will also realize the uniqueness of that individual and respect that individual. And when the person begins by telling them what happened to them, explaining their life experience of a sexual assault, the expectation is is that they are not rude to them, that they initially take it down, believe them, reinforce that, encourage them to talk about it from a point of neutrality. And they take the information in without harming the person. Now, let's go back and let me give you an example of how that doesn't work. And I think that contributed to the rape kit backlog and very well explained by Dr. Becky Campbell in terms of her analysis in the Detroit experience. An officer sees a teenager in a home complaining of a sexual assault. The assumption in the officer's mind is this is a wayward teenager, parents are not home, and consequently she had her boyfriend over and she got caught. That assumption minimizes the objectivity and the potential to capture a rapist. And that's not victim-centered care. What is victim-centered care? You see the same teenager who had her boyfriend over, they had sex, but now she says, my lived experience is this man knocked on the door, I let him in, and he raped me. That's a very different thinking process. It now says this man's a stranger, maybe. Maybe there's fingerprints. Maybe we can do an investigation. And it also says to the young woman, I hear you, I believe you, I'm going to write this down in an objective manner, and I'm going to investigate all the leads. What that does for the person who's been victimized is that it says, thank goodness I've got someone here that is believing what I'm saying and is going to try and find this other person who did this to me. And even if they're unsuccessful, the first steps of objectivity and listening and not having preconceived ideas about this particular person. Now, it's easy to do with teenagers, but let's say this victim is a homeless person. Well, then you really get some things playing in your head about the worthiness of this person. I go back to nursing ethics. I'm going to tell you this is a person that was once a bouncing baby in somebody's arms, loved. How did they end up homeless? And I'm going to tell you that that individual had a lifetime of experiences that contributed to their homelessness. They're no less deserving of the same objectivity. So when I see a campaign like Start by Believing, I know that that group of people are going to go in and start a conversation that's objective and neutral 
and supportive. It's victim-centered. And more importantly, it's trauma-informed. We recognize by entering their world, we have the potential to make it worse for them or help them transition into a healthy recovery. Yeah, there's two kind of themes I'd like to pick up on from that and that FTCOE has been involved in. And I, I know you've had some influence over it. I would point people to the series that we did on sexual assault response for vulnerable populations. It's one of the most popular webinar series that we've ever had. It's all available on demand. And the core of it is exactly is what you're saying. You know, it isn't that vulnerable populations are more worthy for anything like that. It's just that everyone is worthy of uh, having the criminal justice system and the people in that system take them seriously and to value them as individuals. And I think you put it very nicely. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it quite as well, but kind of meet them on their own terms. You have to kind of be in their world. That's what being patient-centered is about in nursing. That's what being victim-centered is about. You have certain tools in your tool chest that you need to apply or can apply, and you need to be able to understand where that person is right now and what the situation is. And the objectivity and your belief in that person's worth allows you to take a step back and say, here is the best way to approach this person. Here's the best way to approach this crime scene that you've encountered. Is that a fair way of characterizing it? It is. And I also think that an an element of that is trauma-informed care. So that another piece of that from the trauma-informed care principles is creating a safety net for that person. So we do that by telling them who we are, what we can do for them, what the process is, and then allowing them to choose from that smorgasbord of tools in our toolbox to assist them in choices that they have to make. And they have to make them based on whether or not they trust us, whether or not they see it as a benefit for them. And more importantly, and this is something I found in my research, that they have an altruistic streak that they don't want this to happen to anyone else. And so they cooperate with us in this process. And that's why nurses will prepare them every step of the way about what's going to happen next. This is what I'm going to do now. Is this okay? Because we're constantly bringing them into the process. The worst thing in the world that can happen to a patient is for somebody to say, do you look uncomfortable? Why don't you visualize a safe place while I go on and give you this shot or do this to you? No, this person needs to be engaged in the process. We can teach them some relaxation. We can explain to them why their chest hurts, why their stomach's in a knot, why they have a headache, why their mouth is dry. These are all physiologic reactions to that trauma. So we can teach them that. And in teaching them that, we normalize it. The people I see are responding normally to a very abnormal event that they have no experience in addressing. 
So the other theme I think is really interesting, and I'd like to kind of go back a little bit to that Johnson Johnson kit and talk about evidence collection. Because the other theme is that when we do these podcasts, because we're now into over two years of them, a lot of forensic examiners who didn't give up on a piece of evidence or on a case, and they remembered the victim throughout the, the process and, and decided that they weren't going to let it go, right? They were going to make sure that they did every due diligence they could. In many cases, that wound up solving serial murder cases or serial sexual assault cases and, and other very, very serious violent crimes. So the issue is kind of how evidence collection has changed over the years. What was the object of that Johnson Johnson kit? Because we didn't have DNA testing in the 1980s. I don't know when you started collecting with the idea that it, you would assume that it would go to DNA testing. So what were you looking for out of that Johnson Johnson kit? You know, kind of what was the object of the collection at that time? Interesting you should ask. It was all about serology. When you found semen, and as a nurse practitioner, I would put the the uh, sample on a slide, and I would put a cover slip on it, and I would look for modal sperm. I would uh, also stain the cells and look for disease states because I could treat the patient. I would send the samples off to the laboratory, and they would look for secretor status. The first thing they would do is type it for the blood. And if the assailant happened to have a rare blood type, then the, the persons they picked up as suspects were eliminated if they were from a different blood type. So it was an exclusionary test as opposed to DNA, which is an inclusion test. In fact, it's an identity, uh, depending on the test that you use. So we looked for secretor status, which was why we needed to keep the Q-tips moist because they were looking at the cellular content of the material and looking for the number of blood cells that were in that uh, seminal bolus, which included white blood cells, which were nucleated. So you may remember in the 50s that, um, that the DNA helix was discovered, and then in the 70s, they had perfected the DNA test called RFLP. And then in the 80s, when I came along, they were talking about the potential of DNA solving crimes. And I thought to myself, I said, okay, we're already doing a lot of work. So let's just collect a Q-tip and dry it. And so we bought a dryer and we collected Q-tips and started drying. First of all, there were too many kits to develop at the laboratory. So they said, we've got to have a way to store these. At the time, police were making the decision based on whether or not a suspect was found and if a case was moving forward to develop the kit. Makes sense. If you have a suspect, you want to build the case going into court. That's a law enforcement decision, not a nurse decision. When we started drying kits, we went to the boxes, and because at that time things increased so much, we were eventually, I'd say by, I don't know, 1988 to 1990 or so, we were ordering a 1,000 boxes a year of rape kits. And in my 20 years there, we saw an average of a 1,000 a year. And remember, they were in business 10 years before I got there. So we were seeing this amount of people 
And then the 10 years since I left, there's another 1,000 every year. So when you start looking at the number of dried samples that began in the 80s when I was the coordinator that were stored in police storage because the process at the time was to have a suspect and move forward. The other thing that you have to remember about the DNA is that when they got the capacity in the crime labs to do the RFLP in my area, it used up the entire sample. So PCR came along first. And when the SDRs came along, if they had developed the RFLP at the time of the assault, they had no more evidence. So I fast forward and the rape kit backlog and the process changed. Now we develop all rape kits based on the visibility and the capacity of CODIS, the routineness of the laboratories having the capacity to develop STR, and the rapidity of the testing that is available now. You go from hours and days of RFLP to minutes, literally, and multiple samples with the process taking no more than a day. Then it's an issue of backlog and getting things developed. So the point I'm making is, is it any wonder as awareness grew and processes changed and science advanced that we have a backlog of thousands of kits since we've been collecting for 40 years? Well, I think it's important to even recognize that that change in science has fundamentally altered the entire process, right? It's going from serology and, as you called it, an exclusionary test to the ability to do identification. And as your research shows, I'd love to talk about that. And we're now able, you know, a fair amount of time after the fact to do a collection that results in a DNA profile on an assailant. That's a revolution. And behind that is a whole set of systems. You know, when I started at uh, NIJ, the entirety of the DNA convicted offender index was other under a million people nationwide. And in certain states, especially that it built up their database like Virginia, your chances reasonably good that you were going to get a hit, but not nearly what they are today. You're now able, instead of saying, okay, is this person in front of me, can I learn whether they're excluded by the sample? You can say, is the person anywhere in the world just about ability as matching this DNA profile, one in 100 billion? I mean, that's a completely different framework, and it influences everything about how collection kits are done and how you uh, kind of, uh, you know, approach these investigations. You're absolutely right. And I think there's another system that played a part in that. And that was when judges allowed Mm -hmm. prosecutors to charge John Doe's because Mm -hmm. their DNA is known. So they can be charged with a crime even though they don't know who that person is because of their DNA profile. So it takes all of the systems. And it was a sea change. But it was a sea change that was predictable as science marches forward. And as visionary people were able to change what they did in terms of the collections. Now we're at a place where even the approach to the crime is that if we have all these samples in a system for comparison, then we will have the serial rapist. And consequently, 
the advocates who contributed significant knowledge in the early days about crimes that looked alike. So they would work with victims, and the victims were saying the same things about these offenders. They knew the cases were connected, and they would alert the police department. And sometimes they'd pick up. But then the offenders changed their behaviors, too, with each crime to throw off the police department. Today, because of the science, the DNA doesn't lie. Now, it may be there because that person was part of that circle and transfer DNA is a totally another podcast, but it is identifiable. And so it has sea changed what we do and how we approach this. But you know, the real kicker here is it has not changed the nursing practice. Nursing practice is still governed by the license, the ethics, and the scope and standards that are in this area. Tell me about your research in post-vital interval. Uh, is that based on YSTR work, or is that uh, broader than that? Tell me kind of what you've been doing these last few years in that area and what the implications are. Yeah, this is really an exciting event. Uh, the Department of Justice saw value in it and has funded it. And we're marching forward trying to distinguish populations. In the 90s, I was chosen to be the token nurse on the laboratory director's technical working group. And I would listen to the research that they were accomplishing. And I was thinking to myself, they're not out there with the person. They don't understand the clinical nuances in individuals. And so in some of those conversations, I would challenge, what about this variable? What about this variable? What about this variable? And because they were collecting and looking and depending on the testing that they were testing in their research, they couldn't tell me. So I asked Dr. Jack Ballantyne if he would partner with me to begin to tease apart the variables that influence DNA detection and recovery. And he agreed. We designed a research project, and it was funded in 2009. And we had a nationwide search using forensic nurses to collect samples from volunteers. And we had about 150 volunteer, and of those we had about 66 complete the entire protocol. So let's talk about the difficulties in the protocol. It required 10 days of abstinence, and abstinence required protected sex and no digital and no oral sex. To And so when the couples had to abstain or use condoms without spermicide, we had some dropouts. The samples were sent to the lab, and this is my disclaimer. I am not a lab person. I'm not a DNA specialist. But I will tell you that first they took it through the routine STR. We called that a standard STR, and then they moved it to an experimental enhancement of YSTR. And it was in that that we discovered that the STR uh, detection dropped off rapidly by about four days. And the YSTR, we found DNA maybe without an identification. 
but we detected DNA at nine days in 65% of those women. So it may not be enough to create a profile, but science marches forward. And so it informs laboratories about when to move a case where STR is not providing a detected sample and move it into YSTR. And this is particularly true for the extended postcoital interval. A delay in reporting by anyone might say to the lab, let's move straight into YSTR. Recognizing that there are systems issues with CODIS and that states began to keep YSTR records like CODIS and are comparing across state lines now. So we know that as the science moves forward, these uh, enhanced methods are going to take hold. So sure enough, the STR began to be enhanced, and now they use an STR method that detects more alleles. So, Pat, then you had a second grant to look at the question of detecting more alleles. How did that get structured, and what was the reason for that second grant, and how did that proceed? Our first grant, the population of volunteers, while we had about 15% minority, the numbers were not great enough to make a statement about minority populations. So I, I found statistical significance with two variables that influenced DNA detection and recovery. And those variables were hormone birth control and menses. Now, it makes logical sense, doesn't it? that a period would wash out sample. Yeah. However, however, it didn't wash it all away. And so that 65% detection turned into 50%. And with hormones, it, it was even further. I think it was in the 40% range. And when you combined it, it was in the 50% range. But this population was non-minority. And so when I applied for the second grant, I specifically wanted minorities to participate to increase the number so that I could look for statistical significance and determine if, in fact, minority populations had the same detection rate. And recruitment is tough. The protocol is tough. We had another 150 or so volunteer, and that report will be coming out, by the way, soon. And what we did is we determined first Was there a difference in the populations? And finding none, we combined the data. And when we combined the data, we found that the 17 allele testing that we used in the first study had been replaced with the 27 allele testing. So in order to compare apples to apples, we took away the additional 10 save them, that's another report that's going to come out, and compared the 17 to the 17. And then we took it through the enhanced method to see if, in fact, it bore true again. So the first step was to compare the populations to see if there were differences in the population. There were not. Once that statistically was determined, then we combined the data and determined that the same two variables were influencing DNA detection, however, not as much. And so 
we found statistical significance with hormone birth control when using the STR method. We eliminated statistical significance for menses, and that may actually have to do with collection technique, and I'll talk about that um, in just a minute. So as the science builds, this particular research study that is the largest in vivo prospective study done on DNA detection determined that the STR method that is used with the 17 alleles is the least effective. The 27 alleles is effective to five days, but in that group, it drops to 20% in five days. Using the YSTR in the extended postcoital intervals, that is the tests with the enhanced methods developed by Dr. Ballantyne, that you will find DNA in 65% of the women at nine days. And it held true throughout the study. So when we look at probative samples, the closer to the nine days we get, the less likely it is to be probative, but we still have DNA detection. And so my sense is, is that the science, just as in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, moved forward, that the science will move forward and become more sensitive in the future so that this study will inform the researchers about that. Now, this is on reproductive-aged women, minority and non-minority, and we now know what fertile couples from men who have sperm bolus in the semen, we now know what that looks like. What we don't know, half of the males in the Americas are infertile, and of those, a third are vasectomized. When you have semen with no sperm, we don't know what that DNA detection looks like. So let's go back to the human beings who are evaluating these cases. And you get a report from the lab that says no DNA detected using STR methods because that's what the lab uses. Or we have DNA detected, but we don't have identity. Or we have DNA, but it's not probative. The natural inclination is to go to what well, didn't happen. And I'm here to say to you, there's no evidence to say it didn't happen because we don't have the evidence on men who, who have no sperm. Think about that. And a third of the males are vasectomized. Right. So you're going to be covering some of this in some webinars you're doing for FTCOE coming up. Can you Kind of talk about what you're anticipating in those webinars so that people can anticipate that. I think that based on what we're hearing now, I think a lot of people are going to be very curious about tuning in for those. Right. Another area we don't know about is what happens in menopausal women. And menopausal women have the same issues that children have. So that's another area of research that needs to be accomplished. The webinars are going to cover things like elder abuse and trauma-informed care, and in particular, one that I enjoy teaching to my students who have to create differential diagnosis is the neurobiology of trauma. In our coursework, we call it the physiology of trauma, 
And these webinars will bring the science forward about what we know, talk about what we don't know, and hopefully some of the viewers will get some ideas about where to take their research. As a researcher, I know that one person cannot do it all, and it takes multiple researchers to get this information and to adequately evaluate it. I do think that elder abuse, because of the burgeoning population of older persons, will become the area of most interest in the future. We don't know about what happens to DNA in an elder rape. And we do know injuries occur because of physiologic change. But what happens to the semen and does it stay there? Is the environment inhospitable? We don't know about anal rape. We don't know about DNA detection there. So these are all things that if using the validated protocol that I have that's available at the national level through the Department of Justice archiving systems, by using that protocol, we may be able to answer these questions in the future so that we can make informed decisions as healthcare providers, as officers who have to determine investigation activity, as prosecutors who have to look at prosecution, as judges who have to look at all of this, and as advocates who need to know how to explain this to their clients. So for me, it's about improving the practice for forensic nurses who are responding to persons who have a life experience of sexual assault. And so you can see that I'm even changing the language because there are too many types of trauma that nurses respond to that require the same skills. That is understanding DNA, understanding transfer, understanding the human condition and in all its forms and all its presentations. And being there as a guest, attempting to help them to a higher level of wellness. Well, Pat, uh, I do appreciate uh, you being on the uh, on Just Science today. We have covered a great deal of material. We have talked about the origins of forensic nursing. We've talked about the, the evolution of evidence collection. We've talked about patient and victim-centered care and much, much else. I feel like, though, we've just scratched the surface. I hope that uh, folks follow up and look at some of the resources that uh, you have through the forensic nursing associations that we have through forensicsdoe.org and tell their friends and colleagues to uh, uh, tune in not only to Just Science but to all the other information so that they can keep up to date and we can continue to improve how we care for these victims. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you all for listening. Next week, Just Science interviews Dr. Patricia Melton and Dr. Kevin Strom from RTI International about their work with the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative Training and Technical Assistance Program. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Thank you.